0: Three, two, one. How How now, now
1: round 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 cow? cow. What took you guys so long? I was. Why did you take so long
0: to say it? (laughs) (laughs)
2: How (laughs) now?
0: (laughs) Okay, send me those digits.
3: Two, one, seven.
4: Hi, this is Sophie.
3: Oh, oh, the Sophie. (laughs) <laughs> Landon, that, that sounded, that almost sounded like a,
0: um, like the voicemail, actually, but it's yeah. you. It did.
3: Oh,
4: Welcome. yeah, I'm a little formal, I guess.
0: This is Mike, you might be familiar with me from, uh, several li- episodes you've listened to.
4: I'm a big fan.
3: <laughs> Just a couple. You've at least listened to one. One. We'll give you that, I've
4: listened right. to, like, five. Oh, five.
2: all, all, right. Right. all, all right. right. Oh, wow. I didn't, I didn't, I didn't want to
3: assume... Sophie, my These name guys is Ross. Need a lot of help.
2: Uh, if you've listened to five episodes, you've heard me at least three times. So nice Correct. to meet you.
4: Or, nice to meet one, you. Great.
3: Ross and I were college roommates for four years. Mike lived with me in Champaign for a couple years, early granular. Oh,
1: and so did cool. Matt. Yeah, so my name is Matt. Uh, yeah, I mooched Landon's apartment for about eight weeks uh, during a clinical rotation in PT school.
0: <laughs> Sophie, can you can you introduce yourself relative to Landon?
4: Yeah, I'm Sophie. I worked with Landon at Granular, and we both went to U of I, although we didn't know each other there, but I had the pleasure of uh, starting up the Champagne Granular office with Landon. We did. We did
0: indeed. Okay. And you're still at Granular?
4: No, I'm not. Oh, no. I, I left, I think, like four years ago.
0: Well, we've got, uh, I almost said Sophie's apology. Socrates' apology going on tonight. Landon says, you're but almost, he, his, his enemy was the sophist.
3: So, oh, you're right. kind of, it kind of, uh, I don't, I don't think you're a sophist, Sophie, but you better not um, be. Can you define sophist, Sophie? <laughs>
4: I don't know Sophist, but yeah. Sophia is referenced. Landon,
0: him. where'd you get this girl? Did she even graduate high school?
3: <laughs> the only reason we know Sophist is because it was the Word on Fire podcast. I hadn't, I didn't really come across that term outside of that other reference. But well, they were the the people who judged him, the the Pharisees of the Socratic Athenian lands.
0: You could imagine them as like a modern day slimy lawyer. They're just out the yeah, wind that's, rather than the truth. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a good, the, they were persuasive emotional beings. Yeah. Yeah. Sophie, what do you know about Socrates' apology? Apologia.
4: Can I give my recap or do I have to give a formal one?
0: No, no, no. Your
3: recap. Definitely your recap. I
4: think it's like, I think it's like the original um <laughs> f u to authority, or like the original challenger to authority it's like an example of humility, but not he's like he's super humble in a lot of ways um I'm not this, I'm not that, I'm not a poet, I don't know that much, but in the apology, he's extremely um in my opinion, he's extremely like certain. Of, what is the guy Miletus or something like that?
0: Yeah, good. Wow, nice. that is impressive. Wait, hold on. when are you recalling that name from? From like studying for this phone call or from high school?
4: Oh no, I re looked it up. Oh yeah, okay. <laughs> I wish I had that memory, but um, but then he's like certain in his in in his kind of defeat or his kind of like his conquest via the Socratic method. His and so it's an interesting
3: confidence.
4: <laughs> Maybe,
1: Mike. This is her recap, not yours.
4: <laughs>
2: <laughs> hey, shut up, Mike. <laughs> Sorry, <I'm mansplaining. laughs> Keep going, Sophie. You're He's doing great. <laughs> right now. We're
0: done with it.
4: <laughs> I think that's all I got. I think that that's. But my my tagline would be like the original challenger to authority.
2: Good work, oh, okay. Sophie. Ah,
4: oh, thank you so much.
0: Sophie, have you ever been in a position where you had to produce some sort of apology like Socrates?
4: Ooh, weekly. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <Maybe>. <laughs> um, I think I think you'd have to be a lot more important than me to to have that type of apology on in a lifetime.
0: Oh, that humility that I hear rippling across the phone sounds like you might have just the sort of soul dust that Socrates had, though.
4: Oh my gosh if i if I have a percentage of uh, of his ability to banter, what is the word? Um, what do, what is kind of the meat of what he does? I mean, he makes him look like a fool in the most respectful way. Um, and that's a really great skill.
0: He's an interlocutor.
4: I don't know that <laughs> word. <laughs>
0: Landon, Sophie, do you guys have any special memory of working together that you'd like to share with the Speech Guys audience?
4: Landon, you might have to do this. My memory's escaping me. Did we have any good times?
3: Just tell tell maybe share how they were, how you first um tried to recruit a bunch of engineers in Research Park.
4: I mean I just banned people. <laughs>
3: you also <laughs> you also held a yoga session. Oh.
4: Oh my god, I did. <laughs> yeah. But that didn't work. Zero <laughs> yield from that.
0: Oh, we all know that's not true. Sophie, do you know how to do <laughs> an introduction for the speech guys? I think so. And if you fail, we're going to sentence you to death by hemlock poison.
4: (laughs) Seems uh, appropriate. Okay,
0: Sophie, thanks for joining us. And we're going to let you take over here, introduce the episode, and make it your own.
4: All right, this is Socrates' apology. It's the final for speeches for prisoners. And this is given to you by (laughs) Mike, Matt, Ross, and Landon
0: nice love it although i will correct it's not speeches for prisoners it's (laughs) anyone can listen to it it's by prisoners (laughs) i think for prisoners might be better (laughs) yeah hey let's cue the music thanks for doing this
4: thanks have a good night
0: Michael Schaefer, Ross Johnson, Matt Schultz, and Landon Fry are all, are all
2: here. Free! Free! I've been back and. I'm just gonna say it. I've been thinking it for 10 minutes. I don't want to podcast
0: here. Oh yeah. Now I've seen the road. Pregnancy is a beautiful thing. Pregnancy is a carrot.
1: What if paint sticks to off? asteroids? Like <laughs> yeah. if you don't climb your
4: wallet zombies, the role will us to a better place.
0: We are called to emerge from that default setting of self-involvement. Okay, receiving that introduction, catching that long toss from Sophie. She did a great job, and she's right. This is the last episode of the Speeches by Prisoner series.
3: Yeah, we're going to the beginning of the Western canon as we know it, the uh, spark of um, Western literature, of the written language and it starts with philosophy and a man named socrates in a city called athens 399 bc 400 years before christ we're going to skip to the end of his apology he is in prison he is on trial and he is being accused of several things We'll get into that and can break it down, but I'll, I'll start out with a quote. And if I say exile, and this may possibly be the penalty which you affix, I must indeed be blinded by the love of life. If I am so irrational as to expect that when you, who are my own citizens, cannot endure my discourses and words, and have found them to be so grievous and odious that you will have no more of them, others are likely to endure me. No, indeed, men of Athens, that's not very likely. And what a life should I lead at my age, wandering from city to city, ever changing my place of exile, and always being driven out? For I am quite sure that wherever I go, there is here, the young men will flock to me. And if I drive them away, their elders will drive me out at their request. And if I let them come, their fathers and friends will drive me out for their sakes. Some will say, yes, Socrates, but you cannot hold your tongue. And then you may go into a foreign city, and no one will interfere with you? Now I have great difficulty in making you understand my answer to this. For if I tell you that to do as you say would be a disobedience to the God, and therefore that I can't hold my tongue, will you not believe that I am serious? And if I say again that daily discourse about virtue and of those other things about which you hear me examining, myself and others, is the greatest good of man, and that the unexamined life is not worth living, you are still less likely to believe me. Yet I say what is true, along a thing of which it is hard for me to persuade you. Also, I have never been accustomed to think that I deserve to suffer any harm. And I'll end with, <clears throat> the difficulty, my friends, is not to avoid death, but to avoid unrighteousness, for that runs faster than death. Words by Socrates, just basically a little bit of context um, around uh, his most infamous phrase attributed by to him, um, via Plato the unexamined life is not worth living first reactions on the text the speech did I pick the the best part
0: mate before first reactions can we set up the context a little bit more you said rightly 400 BC right and but like where does this document come from
3: not Socrates but Plato
0: right Plato. Right, so his student. Okay, so Plato wrote this. Presumably he was there at this trial. And what was he officially being accused of?
3: Corrupting the minds of the Athens youth and not worshipping the gods of Athens were two things. Perhaps... A third or fourth.
0: Like being a general like rabble rouser Yeah. Yeah, Yeah. essentially. Mm -hmm.
2: Mm -hmm.
0: Okay. Anything else? He was seventy years old. I I think that's that's sufficient. And the the stakes here for this trial, if he's convicted guilty or determined guilty of those accusations, um is death by poison. Yes. Yes. Okay, that's what stakes here. Mm
1: -hmm. I mean there there's one
0: line that was in the
1: quote. Uh, or in the section that you read, Landon, that's one like I've always uh, kept with me, I guess. The difficult thing is not to avoid death, but unrighteousness, for unrighteousness runs faster than death. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know, just being a father uh, for the first time, or reading this for the first time as a father, um, I think you realize your own unrighteousness differently. Mm-hmm. Um, and how easy it is for you to just kind of be settle into things that are just you know easy convenient what have you Mm -hmm. you know uh, i know we've mentioned this dynamic to some degree but you know like oh yeah i'd give my life for my family but it's like would i give up uh this one thing for the evening for my family you know
0: that's right matt has birthed a child since our last podcast episode yeah hasn't been uh well
1: my yeah i haven't claire would take exception to that (laughs) but uh yes my wife uh my beautiful uh my beautiful, wonderful wife has birthed our second son Joseph. Joseph P. O. Schultz. So
2: First thoughts or first reaction. Kind of like nothing specific in terms of oh this line was cool, but more I feel like a little bit of a broad thought. Just I think the sense that it didn't feel it doesn't feel when you read it that he's Like, he's more, I feel like, defending himself in terms of, like, he didn't really think he was doing anything wrong, obviously, as opposed to, like, trying to get himself off the hook, if that makes sense. So, I just feel like, if I was on trial, it seems like my motivation would be, like, avoiding (laughs) the guilty verdict of death, right? And not that you would, like, I would lie about it, but, like, that, seeming like that would be my primary focus, where his doesn't seem to be that, when you read it. It definitely seems to be straight up just defending himself that he didn't Mm -hmm. that he didn't do anything wrong, if that makes sense. Um, And I mean, he explains why, you know, if you read it, you know, his death doesn't seem to bother him as much in a lot of ways or have, you know, I think it would a lot of people. So maybe that's part of why that didn't seem to be his primary concern. But I feel like just reading it. I mean, it's been a while since I've read it. So I mean I could have given you at least the context and the general ideas of it I think but just reading it again that I think is kind of my first first reaction.
0: I I <coughs> I don't know if I've ever read this speech in completeness right. um but I was very familiar with it but I actually have read the sequel to the speech. What is that called? Is that the, Fido? The the, M-
1: the meno? I thought it was the Mino. It could be the Fido. Uh, some so he's funny in prison, and his word. friends are trying to convince yeah. him to break out of prison. Right,
0: yeah. right. Yeah. Uh, also written by the Plato. sequel or
3: the prequel um, it had to have been before the sequel. No, that
0: no, was, no, that it's, was it's, after it's he was condemned after. to death. Gotcha. Yeah. <clears throat> gotcha. He spent he spent about a month in prison awaiting execution. And one of the interesting tidbits I read was how, like his, and this sort of just emphasizes Ross's point um, of his extraordinary perhaps um foolish maybe i don't i'm not necessarily that but uh devotion to um integrity i suppose is his uh accusers um in the uh court in the trial they like basically wanted him to escape while he was in prison like they apparently made it very easy for him but he refused Um, Anyway, but yeah, I have read the sequel, uh, which is interesting. Uh, Among the things in the sequel is how Socrates believed in people who dwelled at the bottom of the ocean. Um, There were a couple of other really funny-sounding things. I mean, there's other mostly noble and interesting things, but still. Um, One thing that stuck out to me, realizing that this was 400 B.C., this was 400 years before Jesus came around. This is so crazy long ago. But, despite that, the characters in this story, um, not in sense that it's fictional, but just in this dynamic, they're all like people that we can imagine. Like, they're all the same kinds of people yeah. who exist today. Which is crazy when you think about that. And I think that your average high school student would be reading this, that's just not going to be fully appreciated unless they have just a fantastic teacher. Another thing that stuck out to me, which I think that we're going to get to later, is just the uncanny parallels between the nature of the person on trial and the trial itself and the trial of Christ. Mm-hmm. Really, really interesting and extraordinary, really, when you think about it. Um. And anything else to do? Yeah, I, I think that that covers my my first reactions there. Landon, what about you?
3: What made you pick this speech? I do kind of always take a glance at like the oldest work possible in whatever potential category we have. Um, and this fit that description. Um, I know and. We we read this camping one time, right? Is that correct?
0: We did, yeah. yeah. So, November wait, wait, 2019. I think we should
1: tell the full story. Jim Yep. Because Mike Jim Edgar. asked us to memorize lines of the speech <laughs> and I was the only one who had one
0: memorized. <laughs> Matt, we're busy. We don't have time for frivolous nonsense like that.
3: <laughs> no, I think uh, I think I barely remember I don't I don't think I read it a ton before driving up to Jedemger it it is very hard to read um I don't think reading through it like the interpretations of it and the surrounding material of the context and the description of the various characters he's talking about helps you visualize it a lot more um than simply reading it. it it was a harder read than I expected um And yeah, it is 400 years before Christ. I mean, you you look up what philosophy or what written figures were before that, Thales, like people that you definitely have not heard of. And I don't know, this kind of sparks Western civilization. Um, As Sophie said, like Socrates was the first person to kind of thumb his nose at the system or... Another way to put that that the what has been defined by him, the Socratic method, is to get down to the logos, the logic, the reason the yeah, the logos being the truth of the matter, and perhaps infinitely questioning it until you're at a first principle or uh, the truth. And so Socrates, from a secular, Perspective, question and push back against a lot of the mythology and um, the the many gods and the the first version of democracy, half tribal, half democratic, political mythological culture uh, by just questioning everything, um, and that questioning led him to where he's at. But like invented. Logic and um, try to help people find the truth of the matter.
0: Maybe we can sort of begin breaking <clears throat> apart some of his accusations a little bit. And one thing I did not know before this contemporary visit of the speech is how, like, yeah, they—they he was on trial for these particular reasons that we've already stated. But as I understand it, there was also this dynamic going on with the, what is it, three particular individuals who are referenced in the speech that are sort of his accusers who were part of the, um, the the oligarchy or the old democracy and they did not And socrates was basically anti-democracy which we can sort of explore a little bit but is that g- general dynamic right or
1: yeah so there is um i forget is it like the 30 so peloponnesian war happens
0: yeah um, yep Sparta well takes... hold on. well there's first there's old, there's old democracy sure. of Athens. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Then the 30, 20 crazy long year Peloponnesian War. Then new democracy, which is a lot different apparently than old democracy. Okay.
1: Yeah, yeah, but basically the you you end up with this um, thirty like kind of in the immediate wake of the Peloponnesian War, you have the thirty man group oligarchy, and then that's that's mm. what gets overthrown. Right. So there's but some of like the new democracy are kind of there. There are some remnants from that 30 man, whatever, oligarchy thing. So it's a little bit of like a kind of a shady mix of people. (laughs) But yeah, so people who may not be authentically interested in democracy.
0: But but Socrates doesn't like. Democracy, so that the the, the fine point, the fine point you put on that explanation does not quite make sense. But what's important here? (laughs) I don't
3: think I, I don't think I read that. that. Yeah, I'm interested. I don't think I read that super clearly. How does he not like democracy, and what is his solution?
0: Well, from what I understand, it is that, and, and I mean we can understand this idea. the The idea is that democracy leads to just inherently to populism, mm-hmm. right? That the average person is just incapable of just selecting the best person. They're going to select based upon whatever nonsense factors. So the ideal government for Plato or Socrates was the basically like a meritocracy, where the government... Uh, leaders are trained in the discipline to govern, and they govern completely full time. Um, That's basically the idea. But the point is, like, they're trained and selected in it.
1: I guess Plato's Republic is kind of where a lot of that's fleshed out. Um, It's hard to be really systematic about Plato or Socrates, um, just because Socrates didn't write anything, and Plato wrote in, uh, yeah, just more in, like, dialogue form, so it's hard to tell as much if it's a systematic like he didn't systematically lay out a system of beliefs and and you know Mm -hmm. on politics and whatnot um but um but yeah he was certainly critical you'd have to read like the the republic and there's a lot of um yeah I i would say like very interesting things that plato via the mouthpiece of socrates in the dialogue um kind of throws out there that it's hard to know if for sure if he's for sure being um honest or not in terms of if that's what he thinks should be the case or, right or if that's kind of a satirical i don't know but anyway that's for a different podcast maybe mm-hmm. um but either way he is skeptical of democracy for sure because of it and i think solzhenitsyn kind of had a similar thing you know just kind of a tyranny of the mob or tyranny of fashion or
0: right i mean when we think of like ancient greece right we think of like many gods right this is like where zeus is coming coming into the scene here and i guess maybe this does sort of connect with um with you know being uh laying a certain theological groundwork for christ right so You know, obviously he references. And what this is just interesting how it's worded. He references not God, but like the God, right? Just getting at this idea that there is just one God that exists. Um, I don't know if he doesn't exactly explain like why he thinks that there's only one God. But, and may this connects, Matt, to maybe something you learned in the seminary, but, like, where, where does that, why does that seem like a certain just more rational idea, that there's just one God versus many gods?
3: <clears throat> yeah, he always, when he was referring to his own perspective, he would just use God in the singular, and wherever he used it in the plural, he's kind of, like, <clears throat> mocking the the Athenian viewpoint. I mean yeah, I think for him God is is the the right answer, the yeah logos, truth all of the mythology around the many gods is not based on that truth. I don't I don't think he had I don't think he ever provided a reason between them other than he was acting and his living the most truth truthful to his himself
0: so i i've got two ideas if or uh you if you guys Shoot. don't have anything uh one so i'm sure matt remembers from seminary occam's razor sure yeah that's it yeah him. why don't you define occam's okay so okay maybe since how how would you see occam's razor fitting into the idea of just one god
1: Uh, Well, I guess Occam's Razor is just the idea that if there are two answers, uh, one of which is rather simple and the other is complex and requires a lot of mental gymnastics, like you should defer to the answer that's simpler.
0: Yeah, exactly. Yeah, the simplest answer tends to be the one that's correct, right? Reality is not a Rube Goldberg machine, right? And so... I think that is a certain like natural um, sort of like vision, if natural rational vision, if you will, towards the idea of like one God existing like within this individual is somehow bound all of these immaterial properties of reality, which sort of connects with his idea of, like, the theory of the forms, right? The idea that, look, we observe this mathematical reality, we observe, like, some sort of sense of the transcendentals, truth, beauty, justice, goodness. They must exist in some perfect embodiment somewhere, and so they must exist in a god, not, like, partly distributed among greek gods or something right so that's not exactly like a proof but there it does like one does feel certainly like rationally moved in that sort of direction the other reason let's see by his description of i guess you would say the activity of his conscience um like you certainly don't get the impression that it was like explicitly supernatural or anything. But the extent to which he describes the prominence of its activity within himself and his dedication to following it is not just admirable, but just, like, really, really striking, right? Especially in today's culture where it's, like, conscience, I mean... I mean, how often is that even brought up, like on Sesame Street, right? Like, oh, you know, do what your conscience says something. Um, and so that idea of one's conscience of some, like, not altogether crazy to suspect that, look, this, this inner voice seems to say things about right and wrong. Um, life is generally better when I do the right thing that it says to do. Like, its character doesn't have the character of 500 Greek gods going going on in some sort of chaos inside of me, but rather it's the character of this one being inside of me, right, in some sort of capacity. I would sort of, like, speculate is where that natural, rational sort of idea for a single god might come from, that maybe he was coming from, and sort of ties with some of this his other thought
1: does he i don't recall him making specific arguments that there is only one god though i don't think he argues for monotheism in this speech correct
0: well but i feel like he sort of goes back and forth well yeah you know, maybe this is up for debate but i i sort of feel like he does because the one melitus or whoever it was says that You're an atheist. Well, yeah,
1: so I'm yeah, I don't I don't think he I mean, it's certainly and that's that's kind of the one of the tricky parts of the dialogues is because Socrates well, Plato via the mouthpiece of Socrates kind of entertains a lot of arguments to the point where you're not sure what Plato is slash Socrates is for sure saying versus what is he what are they just like tossing around? I know that uh, I want to say the word that sometimes gets translated as God um, is, is the word daimon or daemon or uh, which which means like a I mean it, it's where we get the word demon from but like it means spirit basically. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if it necessarily means God in the way we would say God um, but also like Greeks probably wouldn't I mean yeah they didn't um, at least at this point have like a concept of a monotheistic God like we do. So like yeah, like the, the, like Socrates' daimon or, or whatever he's referring to there, like, um, is different, you know. Than it's not it's not Athena, <laughs> you know. Mm-hmm. So anything that's not Athena is you know a problem for them. So, um, but but either way, it, it is. Uh, I think that the thing that that strikes me about that element is just more or less that there's an abstract truth that he's willing to to let dictate everything that he's surrendering to, which I think that certainly like kind of alludes to like our notion of God, right? Like there's one God that, you know, like, but there's, there's this one thing, you know, I know, Landon, and I, you've heard of like logos and the uh, logos, the truth, you know, all these different kind of iterations of like uh, the, the one thing that Socrates like is submissive to and subservient of, and like will not compromise on, you know, Um, and it's something abstract, but like for him, it is so real, you know, which that, that's, I don't know, I guess that's just like a really moving thing. And I think that's kind of what maybe gets to, uh, or I guess that's probably a a big bridge to like the, the Jesus, uh, comparisons in terms of like Jesus's trial.
2: Well, Matt, what you said makes a lot of sense, but I think that we're like, it's not clear exactly what he thinks about God or you know, that type of thing. But I feel like it is definitely clear that what he thinks is very mm-hmm. different from like the Greeks at the time. He doesn't say Athena. So I like even at this very last thing, you know, I to die and you to live, which is better, God only knows, right? So he doesn't talk about Zeus or Athena or any other of these Greek gods. So it does seem to be more this principle, this abstract idea that he really believes in and is w- literally willing to die for um, marks a very big change i kind of thought that was interesting in the peter kraft lecture that i listened to just how socrates and then christ kind of bring us or brought the west if you will kind of out of away from mythology you know this these pagan religious ideas um and then kind of got he used the term married but kind of marred together um in you know what we kind of consider western the western world for a long time
0: so this is sort of a nice segue from the first accusation to the second um i was also struck by as i didn't really remember the nature of it the oracle of delphi that he makes reference yeah. to or the mm-hmm. pythia did you guys read the Wikipedia page for the no, Oracle? I
1: – <laughs> I, I, so I, I didn't read the whole th- – but like I, I read maybe the first few paragraphs and then like – and I kept your comment in mind and I was just like, holy <laughs> smokes, that is freaking weird. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's
0: so weird. It's like something straight from the movie 300 that you would have thought they made yeah. up. But <laughs> – right, the idea yeah. – and this is very well documented. This definitely the temple. You can look up where this temple was, but there was a priestess who dwelled in this, seemingly like somewhat off to the rural area place, and she would make prophecies about stuff, obviously, and try to speak wise things. And Socrates apparently did come to her. And she told him that you are the wisest one in Athens, right? And a little bit more like the details of this oracle thing, because, yeah, he makes sort of passing reference to it that, yeah, you don't know what to make of it. But it was this temple. And apparently, you know, people speculate that there was some sort of noxious gas, which, like, Fissured, you know, went through these different fissures in the building, which resulted in the oracles and the people coming to have like these, um, um, uh, the, 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 what's like, I'm looking for? Like just, yeah, exactly, yeah, drug induced experience in order to explain that the supernatural uh, appropriation that ancient Grecians made with respect to this. Um, And one of the other interesting tidbits I read about this was that there's no, like, even though it's referenced so much, there's no deep explanation of, like, how women got picked exactly and how they supposedly had these powers. It's It was just taken for granted. Like, they are... Magical people, which is really crazy and interesting. And also, if you really think about it, like, okay, this oracle somehow knew at least one thing, very logical and very history-shaping, that, hey, Socrates, you're the wisest person in Athens, right? And then Socrates takes that information, believing that it is coming from the god, and he tests that. And he goes out to the best artisan and the best poet and the best politician to best the best his best guess and he basically engages in his style of you know intellectual engagement and tries to poke holes in their thought and you know he basically does poke holes in their thought. You know, you sort of get the vibe that he put politicians at the lowest edge because they tend to think. Well, all of them believe that they know a lot. And of course, as Sophie stated when she started, Socrates had this belief that, hey, I actually know nothing. But the poets just had this genius inspiration, not exactly wisdom. So he was basically convinced that, okay, I think I am wiser than them and obviously the politician. And then the artisans, because they were really good at building chairs and stuff that ancient Grecians used back then that they, of course, knew how to do everything, right? And so, basically, once he's basically convinced that he actually is the wisest, because he's the only one who believes that he does not know anything, but everyone else believes they know everything, that that basically is the substance. That is the beginning of wisdom, if you will, that he comes up with, that it is to know nothing. And that idea gives him the confidence to go among the youth and start preaching in a sense maybe one of those parallels to christ and stirring things up and um ends up getting getting on trial for that so that corrupting of youth but so what do you guys think about that the beginning of wisdom is to believe that you know nothing
3: yeah i think i i think connecting that statement from the oracle's of Delphi's. We don't know what singular monotheistic god Socrates worshiped, but he did surrender himself to asking more questions and not, yeah, not assuming he knew the answer to them based on yeah, maybe the things projected onto him by his education, culture, upbringing, etc., but laying down his own assumptions about that and at least asking more questions. So I think think that was his his religion of reason.
2: I think I would uh, definitely agree, I don't know, like how you worded it, I don't know if it was intentional, but like thinking about the idea, the beginning of wisdom is, you know, recognizing you know nothing. I think there's definitely something there, and just to kind of <clears throat> nail it down into some modern right now life I feel like I've I kind of started to realize that just I don't know just when you hit different and maybe you guys are different but I feel like when I hit different life milestones it's just I feel like I started to realize I didn't know as much as I thought I did so you know I buy my first house I'm I don't know 25 whatever it was uh issue with something exhaust fan in the bathroom or something in crawl space that just you never had <laughs> to deal with before because your parents always did it and then it's like well shoot i, I better call my dad because i don't really know how to handle this situation and i just feel like those types of things come yeah. up same thing when you you know you have to de- live with the spouse have to have kids i mean yeah you go on and on so but i feel like i definitely tasted a little bit about of that and i think it definitely has humbled me somewhat um just you know you coming out of college kind of thinking you know it all and you know a lot but it's just not yeah i I feel like the point is there but so i feel like the beginning of wisdom how you worded it there and i can take it further if you want but if you guys want to jump in um i think there's a lot to that point
1: i think even just in a professional level too like there is an era where it's like if a patient asks a question and i didn't really know the answer i would kind of like not completely make something up <laughs> but you like you just try to answer their question and you, you know you know, maybe you describe things and you you kind of give them this like slippery weird answer that you think kind of gets to it you know and they end up being more confused and you look like a fool and you know whereas yeah i think it just the more uh yeah, I think just embracing the humility of like, yep, it's okay not to know, and be like, you know, I'm I'm not really sure, like, and we don't really know, but this is what I can tell you, you know, and, and just kind of um, have that that confidence as a professional. I, I think there's there's a humility there that makes a huge difference, you know.
0: Continue drawing out some of the parallels between Socrates and Christ. Something that I've been thinking about like over the past months for some reason the nature of christ's apostles uh and original close following of disciples right because the sort of contemporary notion of a christian uh is that they're gullible or you know easily convinced blah blah, blah. and what it right, rightly or wrongly that's just you know the the take but you th- and so presumably then the idea is that somehow that's what early christians were the religion was um yeah 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 doing a little thought experiment here right it's it's who who did christ go to to collect hit or call or summon his apostles or closest disciples right Like they were, they were out normal people doing their jobs—the fishermen and uh, carpenters and tax collectors. I think there's a sod farmer and doctors and whatnot, right? (laughs) (laughs) The point is, is that the gullible people—they were all like gambling at the uh, local sorceries magic shop, right, or something like that, right? They're not, they're not just. They're very practical sort of people who don't take any. And I think it's really um, illustrated well, especially like with Peter and the TV show *The Chosen*, that they're not they're not people who get pulled the fast one on them, right? They sort of have this this natural sense that they don't know everything, right? And then you see in sort of Christ, so many times you see Christ just engaging with questions or parables rather right. than oh this is the answer yeah. Yeah. this is the you know being spoon-fed thing. so anyway yeah just another it would be, it was um, even mentioned parable. in that
3: word on fire podcast with peter Kier... kreef um like a long-standing joke in like the rabbinic tradition is like you know answering a question with another question which is clearly um, related to the Socratic
2: method. I mean, he mentions it there again. Peter Craved, shout out episode, I guess. But um, possibly two of the most influential people, if not the two, I mean, in the West, I mean, in the world, right? Just ever. In terms of just what came after them and came from them. So it's just kind of an interesting thought that they didn't ever write anything down. Like, I don't know, that just I don't know, just kind of hit me a little bit. Because I feel like, I mean, obviously Jesus is kind of on his own there. But with Socrates, and not that I wouldn't have said, you know, oh, he's the biggest or one of the biggest, but I feel like I would have thought of him as a philosopher, right? I would have thought of him, you know, there's Socrates. And yeah, just like, yeah, I mean, or I would have thrown in eight other main uh, philosophers that have, you know, impacted the world. that, But just the fact that he, like, more... He never actually wrote anything down. He more right. started he's, the process of it all.
3: He's a pretty meek dude. One just tidbit: he was kind of more scruffy guy in the street. I always pictured him more in some like Greek academy. Thought he was in an ivory tower, coming up with all this stuff passed down to Plato. But no, he was more a mm-hmm. yeah, perhaps like a street preacher. At one point, I think a theological critique of him is like he did not value the body. It was like, don't you know? Don't eat. Continue. You should be so thirsty for education and always, <clears throat> you know, getting to old age still having so many questions and um, devalued bodily needs, um, which doesn't quite align with um, what Jesus taught, but. Certainly not a guy in an ivory tower. Any other similarities?
0: Right. He's poor. He was poor. Um, although he did have boys, it sounds like. He also sounds like he was a really bad husband and father. <laughs> Since he says that he <laughs> neg- has neglected them for quite some time now. <laughs> In order to pursue his studies, so <laughs> the idea of vocation was uh, he did not quite get to that
3: one. I think he was a son of a, I mean everyone probably was, but like son of a stone cutter. So he spent a lot of earlier years like in a laboring tradition, like being a carpenter, and then didn't find his way as a educator until his 40s or something. And this the speech took place in his 70s. He was not, like there were other people who taught and persuaded and perhaps they were more of the sophist variety. Like he would not accept income for his teachings and accepting income for being taught was like a thing in Athenian culture where you could like pay to learn some of the traditions. And
0: So something that might be interesting to run with a little bit here as you sort of move towards the general direction of uh the final bell is sort of the legacy of socratic thought greek thought logic philosophy as it relates to general western culture and modern day you might be able to find a final mm-hmm. bell question somewhere in there
3: side point homer was the 8th century bc so iliad and odyssey were still probably 400 years before this homer and his buddy ho somebody else wrote the background for a lot of the greek mythology so they yeah a lot of work still comes from the iliad and odyssey that's probably the oldest um aesop's fables before socrates and then we get to like socrates so point of clarification there
2: as far as modern day thought i think and maybe i was about to see so say you have socrates who has this kind of the idea like using logic getting down you know to the root of it figuring out these basic ideas and then you know drawing life out of them or how to live your life and i was like i feel like people today in some sense, might not like that, even if they would say they would, because I feel like a lot of our, where people seem to draw how they live their life, is based on comfort and, uh, honestly, just the self, just kind of worship of the self. You know, whatever makes me feel good, whatever I want to do right now, all that stuff. But then I started second-guessing myself, because I was like, I don't know if that's next, I don't think that's necessarily a modern argument against socrates i'm sure the people of his day probably made the same exact thing um and the same exact or not an argument against but maybe reasons why they weren't keen on accepting it and i think somebody even put one of the highlighted something yeah yeah they're in the in the in the speech, what return shall be made to the man who has never had the wit to be idle during his whole life, but has been clueless of blah, 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 wealth, family interests, military offices, speaking the assembly, and then Mike's comment was nothing new under the sun. Um, so I feel like maybe it's more of a rehashing of old dislike of what, what living out Socrates thought actually leads you to live.
0: Could you maybe I wasn't paying attention can you synthesize your your thought one more in a couple sentences
2: yeah so your question how does this kind of play to the modern mind I guess so first thought moderns wouldn't like it because modern minds wouldn't want to actually try to figure out the truth and then live according to it they would want to yeah they would want to say, "This is how I want to live, yeah. so I'm going to pick the truth." The in quotes that would let me do so. Yeah, find your That was fine. my point. Right. Yeah, 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 yeah. Hashtag dude. know your truth, live your truth, you be you. I could just go. I mean, don't <laughs> stop me, because I would stop me, because I could no, just keep, keep going. No, keep going. But then, keep going. <laughs> um, <laughs> but then I was, but then it hit me. I was like, I don't know if that's a modern thought, um, if that makes sense. I'm sure people for back as far as people have been around probably had similar quote unquote no your their truth would have been different but i feel like the that idea of no i don't want to have a a truth that i base my life on i want to pick what i want to live and then yeah i think the fact that he was willing to just
1: abstractly think about those things because i know mike you made the one point about uh I guess, like one of Socrates' critique of the blue collar folks, that they're just kind of this practical mindset, right? They're just kind of what's going to help. And there is a certain logic and truth to that. Like, some things will be financially good for you, other things won't, you know. But um, I guess just the, the next level, besides finding something true in this sort of uh, pragmatic sense, it's like, all right, what's absolutely true? And like, why aren't we, uh, you know? And then just kind of uh, what's righteous, what is good, like what are these bigger principles? And then then working from there, even, you know, because I, I think that even some people would be like, oh well, I'm you know, I'm, I'm submitting to the truth, and you know, I'm, I went to college and I majored in something that would pay back my college loans with, you know, and they're kind of like stuck on this surface level, you know, um, and you might say like, oh well, I'm just working within the truth, you know, like. This, this sort of uh, just pragmatic truth I guess um, but there's like more depth there that they're missing out on
0: I mean I think that in sort of like referencing what I had said initially like all of the characters in the trial are mm-hmm. recognizable they still exist today you know the find your truth sort of people it's like yeah they seem really loud right now but yeah i I think that they have always existed it's just sort of a fluctuation of proportions um at at different times uh and also obviously just the type of media that we use that that makes them feel more loud yeah and i with what matt was saying that we haven't really gotten into with or that we briefly mentioned with the different groups sort of appealing to their own type of reason in order to find happiness in this life, right? Sort of a uh, anti-epistemologist, uh, um, epistemologist. I always mispronounce that word. Um, yeah, I mean, you definitely, especially in a world where it can just feel so complicated. It just feels so much safer and more comfortable and powerful. You feel very powerful as the guy who can fix anything on a tractor to just apply that same sort of practical thought to your marriage. Like, oh, I don't know why my wife isn't talking to me. I did X, Y, and Z for, like, oh, of course, so therefore, right? But rather applying that sort of different sort of sort of lens to things um
2: this idea of a nice you know the beginning of wisdom is understanding you don't know everything you don't yeah that whole thing um i feel like there has to come a point then though the reason i said i think that's true for the beginning of wisdom i think sometimes that can lead to inaction is not the right word but that's the word that's coming to my mind um, but I feel like there's something in life as an adult, as a man, to be like to be wise. Like sometimes you have to act. So to try to like tie it in and make it make sense. Um, I feel like this idea of I don't know anything. That's like this I that like accepting that is the beginning of wisdom. But then there will be some instances where you probably actually do know something. So I feel like kind of recognizing kind of like to Matt's point about as a PT, you know, how to answer that question. I think just recognizing when you do and versus when you don't is just really important. And when you don't, to be honest or to just not say anything, but then when you do, to not, you know, have this, you know, this false humility or something, something like that, if that makes sense. Um, You know, like I was thinking, like, so when we were on the golf course last weekend, like, I don't know. I hit a ball that was probably not good, and um, I didn't know where it went because gets up in the air, and I can't. Always, I don't know where it ends up. And Landon just seems to, like know where his ball goes. <laughs> I don't know if he's got like, a tracking device in there or what. We just know where like it could go. So I mean, yeah, whatever. So like at one point I was like, Hey, Landon, did you see my ball go? And I didn't want you to be. Yeah, I wanted you to be wise there, if that makes sense. Like you're the you're the guy on the golf course. I needed some wisdom. I don't know if that makes sense or not. If that's the best example, but. Well, this
0: obviously gets into the dynamic that Sophie was explaining at the start that was really striking to her is his capacity to be simultaneously agnostic in a general sense of the word, but then also committed because yeah, he does sort of take that agnostic sort of fundamental approach, but he clearly does commit to things because he, you know, drank the hemlock. Hashtag drink the hemlock. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. That is, yeah, that sort of dynamic, though. I, I think that the metaphor, and I was sharing this with Chris uh, on one of our podcast episodes. Um, it's like how, <laughs> not podcasting scare. I'm not sure if you guys listen to this because I, I do feel a little self conscious sharing this, but. It's like how much how how certain are you that when you die that there's going to be basically the the Catholic manifestation of things, right? Like that's basically how it is. Like if I were to put money on that, I don't know. (laughs) Fifteen to thirty five percent sure. Which is actually crazy high, honestly, when you really think about it. It's like, okay, the likelihood that you think someone died and rose from the dead and all these million other things. Right. So that's like in a sense of like the I'm not sure sort of sort of like dynamic there. But I I don't take the approach as like well, it's probably not true. And so therefore I'm going to live as if it's not true. It's like, no, this in a sense is the, despite it in my sense, my mind, like, having not, like, super high probability, like, it's not gonna rain tomorrow, it is, in a sense, though, the most true thing, right? It it singularly occupies this one particular plane of my life in a way that nothing else can or does. I, I feel like that's sort of, like, the dynamic that's getting there between that agnosticism, like, well, I don't know, but... I have to commit myself to this in order to be true to myself and true to what I observe.
1: That's an interesting question. I don't know if I've ever, no, I'm just saying, not, I don't know if I ever put a number
3: on it, but was he right? See, that's what I, I actually, oh, I did catch jumping up the all over each other. <laughs> yeah.
0: Yeah. Oh man. What's the percent?
2: <laughs> I remember hearing that and I remember just thinking like, yes, I think, but no, also, in the sense of, I just don't think, with a question like that, and I think maybe this does get into Socrates' kind of, I don't know anything, but I'm willing to die for this mentality as well, is, I feel like when you ask the question, like, to what percent, like, I just don't think that's the right, that's like a mathematical approach. If well, that makes to sense. briefly just,
0: defend myself, it's like, yeah, it's not a question no. I would pose in a high school right. theology class, but,
2: but right. But the reason I I think it can make how you think about it because, like, to questions outside of something I can write down mathematically, you don't ever say I'm eighty percent in. It's a it's it's not a how much are you. It's just a yes or no. Sure. So like, so like, do you love your wife? <laughs> it's not yeah, a yeah, yeah. yeah there's just there's just no way to actually do, it's just it's a different type of question yeah. if that yeah, makes yeah. sense so like to try to take that approach it's more yeah. of a i take in the information yeah. i think about the yeah all it, this it's stuff. It's sort of an irrelevant I trust. question essentially right but, yeah. yeah so it's kind of like it's and it's not the exact same but i feel like it's kind of like the if you start if your wheels start turning there it's going to be kind of like the you know, yeah. can God yeah. make a boulder yeah. so big he yeah. can't pick it up? Like that's just not an actual question. So the reason I bring it up is because I actually feel and I think it kind of fits well with the whole, like, action thing, and I think I shared this a long time ago on a podcast, but even with like when I decided to propose to Julie, like there was never a I'm fifty percent sure, I'm sixty percent sure, I'm ninety percent sure, I'm a hundred percent sure, okay, everything's great. It was more of a you think about it, you talk to people, you pray about it, and then you jump off the cliff. And there's this no other way to put it. Um, so I feel like in these types of questions, it's kind of like that. So I just don't think it's a – yeah, so anyway, I think that fits Socrates well because I think it's kind of that – I think wraps or kind of shows a little bit of the – yeah, he's admitting he doesn't know everything, but he is so certain of this, he's willing to die for it at the exact same time.
1: Yeah, it's just a beautiful thing to think about because, like, if you went through life with this sort of probabilistic, mathematical—I uh, don't like no one. No one has math problems in their love letters, you know. Like no one. Yeah, like it's. Uh, but like, how often or how easy is it for, <clears throat> for us to think that way, in terms of like, our financial? Deci- it's like well should I put this in this one investment thing and save this and I'll do all this math? And, or it's like, actually, I'd like, maybe we should just like get a nice home for our family to live in and flourish in. You know, like maybe that, like, I'm not saying that there's no um, <clears throat> benefits to being prudent, but.
0: Matt is filing for bankruptcy next month. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's right. By the way, if you guys could Venmo me a few bucks,
1: I'm a little short. <laughs> We're going to have one last party but, at his um, beach house. Yeah, this random example but uh, um but yeah I, I think there's there is more room for that
0: i have an idea for the final bell not great but i'll just put it out there um, what percentage <laughs> do you guys think what was socrates last words
3: one one quick offshoot. do we think the apostle paul read any of socrates Hmm. Quick, quick oh, that's, googles that's lead you to like
2: almost guarantee it. Yeah, I was gonna say ninety yeah. percent sure. Yes,
3: it's hard. A quick Google does not like easily say. Of course he did, um, or of course he didn't. He was a very well educated man. He witnessed in Athens and Corinth, which were all I think involved in the Peloponnesian War. I'm pretty sure. Um, but yeah, I think that his. Just the nature of his ministry was probably in response to partly and partly building off of what Socrates had done and said. Do we think Jesus read Plato?
0: Certainly he knew about him.
1: Do we know Jesus knew Greek?
0: I've looked it up before. I mean, I think it's... Again, like, of course he did. Right? <laughs> Speculate. He probably.
3: I mean, he was. Of course he, was he did. All God and all man. So God knows everything, right? Well.
1: I mean, he also. I mean, I don't. I mean, Jesus didn't know English. Like English hadn't. Like.
0: <clears throat> the man. Maybe it part, existed right. in some way. But yeah, you know, yeah I mean, it's. <laughs> but it's the same person. <laughs> um i don't think he knew new greek though i've looked that up once before though but um
2: but didn't he quote the septuagint in greek i don't know, I don't know.
1: all i know is i know nothing guys i'm, I'm sorry pretty sure
2: he did <laughs> <laughs> you're so wise man so keep talking
1: i don't i don't know if this would work for final belt but I know we've talked in some ways as like, oh, yeah, like nothing's changed, like nothing new under the sun. You know, people have the same faults they did. You know, like these characters are actually surprisingly relatable. But then on the other hand, we're like, oh, yeah, modern people, they just stink. You know, like the modern mindset, you know. So I guess like was there ever a mindset or like a a culture or a group that – I don't know. I I guess I'm – maybe that's not a a real question, but –
2: yeah, as far as normal people, probably not. Crave made an interesting point, kind of like Christendom and this kind of marriage between Socratic philosophy and faith and Christianity. Um, you know, so it's pumping out people like Aquinas and stuff like that. Um, but as far as general general populace, probably not.
3: Right. Yeah, he said it was like two rivers and it was like reason and religion joined with Christ separated it, Reformation and Enlightenment and is now back kind of in like a swamp again.
0: Okay, I've got an idea. Um, you have an examination crisis on your hands. Uh, put yourself in the role of parent or teacher, um, and your pupil, whether they are your child or student, is um, having some major life examination issues. They are just licking the icing off the cake without eating the cake. What are you going to do to compel them to examine life just at least one layer deeper? Or or a point in your life, a point in your life where someone helped you examine it just one layer deeper. I like that. I mean you can sort of pick from any combination of those that you feel compelled to. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Does that
0: work, guys? Okay, cool. Final bell?
1: Yeah, final bell. Ding ding ding.
0: Oh, One more round. There's no stopping us now. This is our round. Don't stop it now. We're stopping. We don't stop. All your strength. All your power. All your love. Everything
2: you have got. This is whole life. Do it now. Now. All your sweat. All your power. All your love.
0: (laughs) There you guys go. That was good. The last part there. (laughs) And we're back. Landon, bring us home. We've explored the sophists. We've explored what Socrates was accused of and why he needed Tom Cruise as his lawyer, and now we're finally. I just watched a few Good Men recently; great film. And now we're gonna touch on that famous quote of his or claim that the unexamined life is not worth living.
3: We are. You have. Um. You have a student. You are. You are Socrates, and a student or your own child has come to you with a decision point, um, an existential crisis, and you must help them examine their own life. Um, How do you do it? Or, if you need another version of that, a point in time where you did sit down and examined your own life and socrates was just grilling you with questions what was that how did you
0: come out on the other side i feel like that's sort of a motley crew of final bell questions but whatever i've I've got something quick quick and simple here um for a moment that uh an individual compelled me to examine life one layer deeper Um, I don't think I've shared this before, but I did write about this in uh, Mel and Grady, now known as Under the Ozark Stars, but when I was helping at a confirmation retreat in high school, junior in high school, and there was an old-ish gentleman who came to, like, the pizza night for this retreat here, so I was not on the retreat, I was helping like one of the teenage helpers with this retreat. And he was interacting with a table of like five or six students, conference students who were actually effectively on the retreat to be confirmed. All I was not interacting with the table in any way. I was just sort of watching what was going on. And he suddenly makes reference, um, To Samson, and when he like Samson Delilah from the Old Testament, and as he's referencing Samson and exclaiming the story, you know he stretches his his arms out, and he's he's like fairly jacked, and he's sort of wearing a muscle shirt, and he's like bald, and he wears it well—that sort of sixty-year-old type guy. And he's pulling his arms in like he's pulling down the pillars like Samson. And that was pretty much it. That's the only thing I remember from that. And I was so struck by that illustration because he was clearly taking the Bible and the Old Testament seriously in such a way, not just with the language, but with his animation, with his zealousness for the hearts of these young boys that he would show up, you know, on Saturday Saturday night here with this group. And and in my mind, you know, it seemed like he was living it out in this special way too, like he, it wasn't just about reading the Bible, but it's like being being strong, right? Like having having uh, admirable arms. And that was the first time I think I would say that I saw Biblical masculinity. And I was just one of these kids, you know, who would sit in, you know, we were in mass every Sunday. And I listen to the, and I've heard other people describe listening to the Bible this way, the readings in the gospel. And there's this sort of like mystique, sort of mysterious way. It's like, I know that these stories all come from the same book and there's a certain amount of continuity to them. Mm-hmm but it's sort of mystifying to me exactly how they connect and it's like with this guy in just a single instant it all came to life and it's as if i heard inside of me it's like this is a thing to be taken seriously and approached with nobility and with wonder he does not know who i am i know like I know what his name is now, but I've like, I haven't even seen him since, but that's a person who compelled me most singularly to examine life one layer deeper.
1: All right. Shout out to Mr. Durward. I would say one, uh, I would say it's similar in that it, there's this, it's the simplicity and that like, I, cause I don't even remember like in detail the words that were said, but uh, it was a situation. I was like probably a freshman in high school. Um, we were, so I had this wrestling tournament, uh, so, you know, Saturday morning, uh, but we were going up to Wisconsin for the family Christmas party. We were going to wait to leave until the tournament was done, then kind of drive up, whatever. So it was kind of this like, boom, boom, one thing after another, trying, you know, just going straight from the tournament to, to Wisconsin. But we were, um, the family reunion is kind of like, is like morning time. Uh, or like late morning to, you know, my family was helping set up. Anyway, we weren't going to go to mass Sunday morning. So we did the the Saturday uh, vigil mass. So we, we get there just in time for mass. And I I was still in my wrestling sweats and whatnot. Um, And I definitely could have changed, you know, like it would have taken five minutes to just change into decent clothes for church. But I was just like, no, whatever. I don't care. You know? And I think my, I know my mom pushed back some, but I guess like I think it just in the the chaos of trying to get four kids out the door, she was kind of like whatever, you know. She kind of let it go that time. Uh, normally she wouldn't, yeah. Normally she wouldn't really. But um, and I was used to my parents pushing back on dressing up for church. Um, just yeah, they would always insist on that. Um, mm-hmm. But I remember getting out of the car, and my grandpa said what the hell are you wearing you know it was just like just very very blunt and like calling me out and like what are you doing like why you know and um i you know i was used to hearing like less blunt criticism but just like my parents just kind of you know pushing back like oh why do we have to jesus doesn't care what we wear like he loves us anyway you know just kind of doing the (laughs) whole like obnoxious teenager you know but um but just hearing one like just the the direct and like like my grandpa was upset about it like he just was not happy with with how I was approaching that (laughs) no he like walking into church like I know he said a few more things to me and I, I can't remember yeah I just don't know what he said but like I remember that was like oh crap like this is a serious thing yeah this isn't something you just wear your sweats to it was about that time like I don't know if that was the thing you know but it was about that time that I started like because it was, uh, I guess I was in like confirmation prep and stuff at the time. And, yeah, it, it was about the time where I started like thinking more and, and deciding, like, hey, if I'm going to do this, I should do it.
0: You know, the, the faith thing. So, you certainly wonder, I think, a lot, like just how many opportunities are missed by us, just like your grandpa did, breaking out of that just. You know, yeah. the motions, the motions. Obviously, there's a lot of people who, like, that's not going to land, but there's so many people, like, for you, where it's like, oh, my gosh. Yeah, you're right. Like, what am I doing? Need more grandpas.
2: To, for the actual, the, that question you asked, like, student comes, son comes, or child comes, or whatever it was, like, what do you do? I heard something, I, I don't know. My first, I was thinking when you asked that question, I was like, well, I, I think, I was just, like, picturing myself talking to my son, I guess, at the kitchen table. And my first thought was, like, oh, I'd offer this advice and teach him. And then it's, like, a, you know, a step back. It's, like, okay, As, you know, the question thing came up a lot, right? Ask questions. Um, and we mentioned earlier, like, right, asking, like, kind of the joke, like, answering a question with the question. But I heard it, I think it was a Bishop Barron maybe sermon once or something. But I don't remember the context of it. But it was, like, you need to ask what do you really want and what are you afraid of? And I just remember thinking, like, if you could get someone, and they don't have to tell you, like, if you could get someone to honestly answer those two questions, like, what do you actually want? And then what are you afraid of? Um, I don't know, I feel like that would help if when people come to you for advice or whatnot, that would probably help a lot. So that, I don't know, maybe I'll try to practice that with my children more. But, um, yeah, to, to bounce off Matt and then the bluntness comment. I mean, Mike has called me out before on something. I won't share the details now, but he's called me out on something before. Um, but the thing I was really thinking of as we were talking about this question, um, I very distinctly remember I was a senior in college, I think, and someone had done something, and I was very hurt by it, and I very much felt, I guess – I think victimized, but in just kind of a childish, pitiful way, looking back. Um, And I mean, I had been hurt, but I think just how much I let it impact me and how I was handling it and blah, blah, blah. And I remember speaking of like the sometimes we just need the blunt response. Um, I went to pretty much two people with this question and got pretty much the exact same response. And it was Andy Meister. And I don't I sad to say I don't remember which priest, but one of the priests at the Newman Center. And they both pretty much just didn't even entertain my whining and were just like <laughs> – I, "I man up is the only thing I remember from like the – both conversations. I remember it struck me like they both told me the exact same thing. Um, I don't know if for people that – I think the priest one might even have been in the context of a confession, which I feel like normally you just get the like – I don't know at your guys' experience but i feel like typically it's just very and not in a bad way i'm not saying this is wrong but just very soft you know well thank you jesus loves you that type of thing so like to get such a blunt response i think was kind of out of the ordinary um and i remember just the way that him and then andy had responded to me just really talking about like examining life one level deeper i mean the bluntness of their responses absolutely made me second or think more about that entire situation and i'm very grateful for it
3: so i will quote when i um gosh a couple things kind of a a little bit of a theme of this summer um for me that i'll share here and the quote that matt highlighted that i read at the beginning of the episode the difficulty my friends is not to avoid death but to avoid unrighteousness for that runs faster than death um uh, a person in my life, I have met him, whose work influenced me to examine life a little deeper, a part of life, uh, would be Wendell Berry. Started reading his books uh, a few years ago, a um, little bit more of a, a uh, vocational aspect of my life. He, he writes a vast body of work questioning agriculture and perhaps modern consumerist, economic um, concerns, um, both fiction, nonfiction, poetry. Um, One particular, he debated, he wrote this big book in the 70s, kind of critiquing big ag, corporate ag, um, whatnot. And he had a little debate with the secretary of ag, Earl Butts. And one little contention point that they had was, um, Earl bragged about, Uh, just, you know, how long the life expectancy was. We live till 70 now instead of 62. Um, And going, and Wendell's response was like, well, that's great, but like, what are we giving up? Like, isn't this a question of values? When When you think of how would you sit down with your son and ask, like, question them through a line of thinking, you would try to like, perhaps suss out like, what are their values, and how how can you get them to confront those, and then perhaps make the decision off of their, you know, perhaps the shared logos you the truth you have with them or imparted on them, but at least get them to confront that truth. Um, to tie that back, just he he questioned robots. He's like, who cares like what the life expectancy is. Um, you know, what are we giving up in terms of like community and how we work with each other and how much life there is in, in our time on earth. And it kind of just ties back into, um, yeah. How well are you living? And Socrates hit on that a little bit. Um, bigger picture. Um, yeah. Wendell has some, some great works. I read a few more of his books. He, he, um, Technically, I think he is the father of, like, the modern organic movement um, for farming, and he just has a very yeomanistic uh, view of of how tightly communities and cultures kind of used to be together that were obviously broken apart for many reasons due to technological advances and whatnot. But after reading all those, I, I did write him a few letters, and um, sat down and, and met with both him and his wife this summer for a few hours and kind of heard heard a lot of his teachings in person and would definitely consider him a bit of uh, uh, current-day agriculture Socrates. He asks and critiques a lot and asks many questions. His solutions are, you know, kind of basic. A lot of his solutions are just, like, keep question it and boil it down to like what is most valued if it's community, if it's relying on each other, if it's loving each other, it's probably less and less about um, being so consumeristic and producing food or valuing the people who produce food, you know, some simple things like that, but um, definitely has prompted me to peel back a layer on uh, vocational matters
0: in life. Okay, it's been a heck of a Speeches by Prisoner series. It's been a long journey, I feel like, going from uh, mm. Denzel down here. To that was Socrates. a good one. That was a so, good one. What do we got going on for our next, thank you, yeah, next speech series? I've got my, my vote. My vote is Speeches from the 80s.
3: We have a motion on the table for Speeches from the 80s. Do we have any other motion?
0: Yeah, 1980s. Yeah, speeches from the 1980s. Rocky.
3: <laughs> hold on, hold on, hold on. Fictional or real? We're
0: going to have four more Rocky speeches. I was just about to say, Mike's got so many movies he wants to do right now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yep. Books. We could do books written in the 80s. Deal.
3: All right. All in favor say aye. Cool.
0: Ross, are you up first? 80s. Opposed.
2: I I I all the all the speech out by give me one week to get it put out
0: fantastic coming up next time Ross speeches from the 1980s it's been great thanks for drinking and drinking.
3: be safe out there
0: <laughs> oh and drink with us by the way too <laughs>
4: hey
0: cue the music one last time
1: yeah.
3: had to ask forgiveness, dead ends come and go, look to